I'd like to welcome you first meeting of this, of this term of the MIT Communications Forum. I'm happy to see you here. My name is David Thorburn. I'm a professor of literature and the director of the Communications Forum. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our uh, later events uh, for the term. On October 20th, uh, which is a special day, the forum almost always runs at this time on Thursdays, but we occasionally make exceptions when speakers we value cannot make it on our regular date, and that's the case for this next one. On Wednesday, October 20th, we're going to have a discussion of the humanity, a broad gauge discussion about the humanities in a digital age, how the humanities are coping with the transition to digital culture, what the implications for humanistic perspectives are for the futuristic emphasis that, uh, digi that, that, that the digital world seems to carry with it in its DNA. And the speakers for that event are uh, Steven Pinker of Harvard, formerly of MIT, and Alison Byerly, who is a professor of English Quite, uh, written quite lovely and distinguished books in literary studies, and the provost of Middlebury College uh, um, uh, here in New England. And uh, my, my hope is that, like today's conversation, the conversation about the humanities in a digital, digital age will be the first in what will become a series, uh, a kind of, a, of ongoing speculation and meditation on the nature of these uh, vast subjects. Uh, in November, there will be two uh, uh, forums that the, that the communications forum is co-sponsoring with the Center for Future Civic Media, located here in the Media Lab. On November 4th, the, uh, we have a forum titled Civic Media and the Law. And on uh, November 18th, Communications in Slow-Moving Crises, and although that title is a little opaque, it's actually a fascinating subject. Uh, it's about what, uh, what about crises like global warming or uh, similar kinds of problems that develop slowly rather than ha happen with one grand catastrophic bang? How do, how do we deal with such crises, and especially how do communication systems uh, um, handle that kind of slow-moving but often devastating sort of crisis? You can uh, find uh, full details about our events on our website and on the uh, uh, website for the Center for uh, future civic media. I want to mention one final thing that uh, quite a long way down the line, but something I hope some of you will be thinking about and plan to attend. Uh, in the spring of this year, the Communications Forum and MIT's Comparative Media Studies Program will uh, collaborate once again uh, on what will be the seventh Media in Transition Conference. And every other year we run this uh, a conference under that broad rubric, uh, uh, and they deal, th these conferences deal with certain somewhat more specific aspects of the uh, hurricane uh, uh, of change and transformation which we seem to be living through. There was a time in my own sense of these things where I thought, well, as with older moments of 
uh, destabilizing transition, the one we're in will, will surely have a terminus point. I'm beginning to think that one of the ways in which this one is different is that it's endless. That it's a, as, as, Rob, as, as, as Thomas Pynchon says in, in, in uh, Mason and Dixon, we may be living in a ceaseless spectacle of transition. And if that's true, uh, learning to deal with change, learning to deal with a, a sort of ongoing instability uh, is a major problem. And that will be one of the fundamental themes of the Seventh Media and Transition Conference. And we hope to specify or concretize it by having various kinds of practitioners and academic, media practitioners and academics address the question of how, to, how they're dealing with or how we might think about dealing with this, this endless churn of convergence and hybridization and the emergence of new, new media of communication apparently, or new formats of communication apparently every other week. So I think that'll be an exciting and significant event. I hope some of you will think of attending and some of you will think of, uh, will, will consider delivering papers at the event. There'll be, uh, fairly shortly, there'll be an elaborate website posted and people, uh, the, the mission statement will be uh, posted there and there'll be a, uh, an invitation for people to submit proposals to deliver papers. It's my great pleasure now to introduce our two speakers. Uh, and uh, perhaps I ought to mention something about today's format. Uh, um, each of our speakers will give brief 15-minute introductory talks. We talked about this beforehand, and they understand that I'm going to rule the time uh, frame with an iron hand. When they get to 12 minutes, I'll, if they get that far, I will remind them, and at 15, I will shut off their microphones if they don't stop. The forum is about conversation and dialogue, and it's important that even very learned speakers uh, 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 part, uh, embrace the, the, the dialogic mission of the communications forum. Uh, um, uh, uh, and uh, after our speakers deliver their opening statements, the speakers and I, as moderator, will engage in a brief conversation at the, at, the, at the speaker's table. And then in the final 60 or 70 minutes of our event, we, of, of, our, of our time together, we will open the floor to, to responses and exchanges with the audience. And, as all, and my expectation is, as usual with such things, uh, it's the question and answer sessions that turn out to be especially memorable. And I'm, uh, no doubt, uh, I have no doubt this will be one of those as well. So, so, so hone, your, hone your, 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 your knives, get ready, get ready for attack agreement and uh, alternative perspectives. We, we welcome, in fact, look forward to and look forward to your contribution to this conversation. Well, our speakers today are especially qualified to address the problem of the continuing online migration of uh, uh, migration to online format of American journalism. And it perhaps might have been a more sensible title to say the migration of journalism online, because we will be talking about things that uh, uh, sites that are certainly uh, do not that do not originate in in uh, traditional uh, newsprint formats. And one of the most interesting features of today's media landscape is the appearance on the web of journalistic uh, forms that don't have a print origin. And I, I'm sure that's going to be one of our our, our subjects of discussion. David Carr, uh, to the far right, 
is uh, this uh, has has returned kindly to the forum for the second time. He was here last year and and uh, made a memorable impression on all of us, and I'm very grateful that he's been able to make the time to return. As you know, mo as I'm sure most of you know, he writes a column for the Monday business section of the New York Times. And I've often, and though it is often focused on economic and business questions, I've often felt that it was misplaced in the paper. It, it, it is to me one of the most revealing and uh, continually, continuously helpful columns about our media environment and about and about what's happening to journalism uh, and, and in, in a broader way to our to our uh, larger culture because of uh, uh, the profound forms of media transition we're experiencing. Uh, he also works for the Times, of course, as a general assignment reporter in the culture section, and he covers all aspects of popular culture. Prior to working at the Times, he was a contributing writer for the Atlantic Monthly and New York Magazine, was the media writer for Inside.com, a website that focused on the business of entertainment and publishing. He also has served as the editor of the Washington City Paper, where he wrote a column called Paper Trail, which was also about media issues in Washington, D.C. David is also the author of a quite a wonderful and courageous book entitled Night of the Gun, a reporter investigates the darkest story of his life. And uh, colleagues of mine in several English departments have told me that they're adding it to their courses, David. I, don't, I meant to mention this to you. They're adding it to their courses in autobiography, in American autobiography. It's a very powerful book. Dan Kennedy, to my immediate right, is assistant professor in Northeastern University School of Journalism. And he's the author of the Media Nation blog, which covers trends in media, technology, and culture. He's also a contributing writer for the Boston Phoenix, where he was the media columnist from 1994 through 2005. And he's a regular commentator on media issues on WGBH-TV's weekly show, Beat the Press. So, starting in July 2007, Dan Kennedy has been writing a weekly online column for the Comment is Free section of the Guardian's American edition. Uh, and that uh, uh, online column, too, is primarily about media and politics. Uh, he is also the author, uh, uh, Dan Kennedy is also the author of a, 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 another kind of, auto, both autobiographers in some way. Uh, David's book, also a powerful book, uh, is entitled Little People, Learning to See the World Through My Daughter's Eyes. And it studies the culture of dwarfism in a profoundly moving and interesting way. It's a great pleasure to uh, introduce our two speakers. David, uh, 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 David Carr will speak first for 15 minutes, followed by Dan, and then we'll have a conversation. Can you, um, can you get my computer up? Uh, Got it. Are you guys? Is this on? Okay. Um, it's a thrill to be back at the MIT Communications Forum. Um, David said I made quite an impression. I was surprised I was invited back after that. Um, uh, I'm a graduate of an undistinguished land-grant university you've never heard of, and so I was trying to explain to my dad where I was, who's both hard of hearing and quite provincial, and kept saying MIT, and he didn't understand me. And I said, Dad, it's one of those fancy Eastern schools I never could have got into. He said, good, enjoy it, yeah. 
Um, uh, it's especially an honor to sit next to Dan. Those of us who are in the media racket frequently find ourselves just grabbing the back of his shirt and hanging on. He's been ahead of the curve, if there is such a thing anymore, again and again, and is not just a gracious colleague, but a, 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 an incredibly uh, surprising thinker when it comes to these issues. So I'm happy to be sitting next to the likes of him. The reason I put up this question is in 1988, um, I'd been out of the journalism racket for a while and was talking to an editor for my first assignment. He said, just fax it to me. <clears throat> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you put it in a machine and it goes through a wire and it comes out as a piece of paper on the other end. And I said, bullshit. <laughs> that, it sounds Flintstones to you, but at the time it just sounded so Jetson, so, so improbable. And if you sort of back up from it, this is uh, information being digitized and pushed down to a consumer level. So it was its own sort of paradigm shift. And I just say that as an example of how I was only out of journalism for about a year and the technology had changed in a very significant way. I think when we talk about how the web has destroyed journalism, we forget how much journalism it has enabled. I have more resources <coughs> in my backpack than the newsroom I walked into. Um, it's It's... It's, it's a fact of cloud computing that, you know, all known fact, you know, one, cl one click away, right? Um, it's, 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 it's right there. Um, we have an ability to surround sources. It used to be, I was just on a big, long investigative story. You would, you'd have to, you'd get a phone number somehow. You'd have to hammer the phone, hammer the phone. I found people on Facebook. I found people on Twitter. I found people on LinkedIn. I made guesses at what their work email would be. Um, and in part, all this technology has become so transparent that we don't even notice it anymore. I also think these distinctions when we're going to talk about old and new media, which I want to talk about more later, just really doesn't happen anymore. I mean, there's everything is hybrid media. Um, we make video. We do blogs. Um, I, I, I think that... Um, sort of what is a dot-com and what is a dot-org, especially considering how many news organizations are losing money is sort of... <laughs> um, and I do think that over time, the point of view is just baked into reporting in a way that we, we, we don't really remember. One of the things that's going to happen is 20, 30 years from now, institutions like this are going to step back. At a time when people thought journalism was being destroyed, they're going to find out it's actually being built. That what, that the information we have now is so much deeper, so much richer, and I'm not just talking in terms of different forms of media, but there is so much more fact-based reporting in my stuff than there used to be because it's there and it's there for the having, and I have resources that I otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have. And I think that we're also looking at sort of disappearance of the platform. What is a newspaper? What is a blog? What is the BBC looks like Reuters looks like the New York Times looks like if you open up um, an iPad, you know, and open up a news source, you don't really know what you're looking at. Is this a TV station? No, it's not. It's on an iPad. But they everything has text. 
everything has video, everything has audio. Um, uh, and the biggest change is sort of in the audience. They're, um, they become like Tom Sawyer, they're helping us paint the fence at every turn. And um, smart media organizations are seeing theirs as partners, producers, and publishers. I think this is, um, people keep saying, where does the time come? The time comes, still does. Share a pie might change, whether my newspaper is getting as much as it used to or not. People are consuming more and more media because they can do so in friction-free ways. I'm not gonna go there. You, were, you cocked the gun about the schedule. I'm just racing through everything I got. Um, <laughs> And I'll, I'll see, so you did, did it in the course of a very windy introduction, so. <laughs> um, one of the things I, I just want to focus on is, um, um, uh, I think this sort of MSM and new media, um, I think a lot of what's happening is you see them marching toward each other. Um, uh, there's, you've got, you know, HuffPo and Daily Beast going out and hiring uh, Howard Feynman and uh, Howard uh, Howard Kurtz. You know, long um, long time SMN, MSN reporters. More and more, I see blogs making phone calls. We used to say, you know, you're sitting in your basement in your pajamas. A lot of the reporting I used on this last uh, story were from really good uh, uh, blogs. I also think that there's a hybrid forms show up in, like, it's okay, Texas Tribune launches, and it's uh, this wonderful <coughs> uh, news site in Texas concentrated on the state house. The dailies there initially take it as an enemy. You're here to take up. And here we are a couple years down the road. They're doing joint projects. They're doing, uh, uh, and, and, and they've met in the middle. I was not like a big ProPublica guy. I looked at the, the salaries of the guys that were running it, and I just thought, this doesn't look like .org to me. This looks like home cooking, a lot of money. And then when you see how their journalism gets spread and how, how many... Uh, newspapers and blogs, all that great reporting has gone in. It turns out to be a very good economic uh, uh, model. Um, I do think there was a couple of days ago, um, you've seen this sort of, I lived through one sort of land rush in terms of, of journalists being value, and then our value dropped to zero, pretty much. Um, but... Uh, when I worked, went to work at uh, Inside.com in 2001, Tina Brown was at the height of her powers. Magazines were paying 4 and $5 an hour. And then what happened is the web, one of the things the ease of production does is, is, is um, content doubles every year. Is that because twice as many people are making stuff? No, it's twice as easy as it used to be. And if you think that's a lot, just think about when, uh, I was thinking about this on the way up here, when voice to text becomes reliable, what's gonna happen in terms of the explosion of, because right now there's all these podcasts out there that I wouldn't listen to with your ears because they're not 
searchable because they're time intensive. But if, if I'm able to interview you and immediately plop it up in text form and we're getting pretty darn close, there's going to be uh, um, a lot. How am I doing on time here? You're all, you have uh, seven minutes. You're all right. Whew. So You have fortune in time. All right. Um, Try not to be too windy, though. Okay. <laughs> I've already pointed out the windy slot got taken. I'm going to be the bloviating spot. spot. Um, the, um, it's weird to watch Yahoo and AOL, which, you know, were portals. And we're just going to aggregate. And now what are they doing? They're out there hiring as many voices and as many journalists as possible. I think what we're heading toward is news sites being, and Ken Doctor, I think, wrote very well about this, a sort of series of federated ver verticals where the writer is known, they've developed a brand either through their work in the, or through social media, and they begin to come up with any number of names all federated under a, um, a sort of uh, a single flag, and you're seeing some of that take place. Peter Goodman, who was at our paper, went to work at HuffPo. Yes. Howard Kurtz went to work at Daily Beast. Howard Feynman, HuffPo. There are other examples as well. And I, I think you might see a little bit of bifurcation between commodity news, that which is good enough, and then an overlay of analysis and commentary from people like Dan who are known for having a certain level and area of uh, 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 expertise. The, um, I thought that Michael Shedson, the guy that did, um, he was like this, the, uh, I think the more industrious, no, I don't want to say that, half of the Downey report, like probably had to actually write the sucker. And um, which was, uh, I, I thought a great place to sort of start. Um, he recently set up uh, what I thought was a smart sort of triptych around uh, what could happen with the media business. One would be a restoration. Ad cycle comes back. As many people as remain, there's a new kind of stability there. And then the second tier he came up with is a diet with supplements, meaning that there's new collaborations, new... Um, new efforts on the cost side, um, gradually moving from, you know, we're kind of in the newspaper business, we're in a, a trucks and manufacturing business, getting out of that business. As we make adjustments on the cost side, maybe we can start to live on the revenues that we're making. Plus new collaborations like the Baltimore Sun and Washington Post now share sports. So there's sort of a middle ground. And then um, he also talked about a mixed economy, which would be your BBCs and your NPRs collaborating with a variety of sort of uh, uh, local sites. Craig Newmark, who knows something about nonprofits, um, suggested in 2020 that NPR would be the dominant news brand, and they certainly have been aggressive in expanding. Um, I think that um, when we look at these new forms, like myself, I did kind of this reverse migration where I was working for a dot-com that blew up and went back to 
uh, mainstream media. I doubt I would leave my current job to go to a new media job just because if I'm going to work in journalism, I'm sort of hooked on this microphone that I have. I mean, right now I have over a quarter million um, followers on Twitter. If, if my last name wasn't New York Times, I think that'd be about 250. And I think you'd wipe out you know, quite a few of those zeros. And you do get hooked on that. The other thing is, and I thought about this because I did a, a very big heave for the New York Times the other day that was on the front page above the fold and all the nonsense that goes into that, which is layers and layers of copy editing, of fact checking, of getting it, watching a big newspaper is like watching, get, come together is like watching a very big train move down very small track. And it's <coughs> incredibly ungainly uh, enterprise. And, and I ended up almost catatonic from it. And I thought, this totally isn't worth it. And then the next day, boom. A story that just took the corner of the debate and just shook it up and down in a way that no matter how articulate my post would have been, um, uh, would have done. And I watched it bounce on Twitter. I watched it um, uh, 400 reader uh, comments. I watched uh, NPR pick it up. I was happy to appear in all these different forms. And I think going forward to suggest, well, I'm from new media or I'm a crusty old media guy is, is not going to get it. I think very soon, whether it's looking at it on this or on this, or as the television becomes more enabled. There won't be new media, there won't be old media, there's just gonna be media. Thanks. Thank you, David. Am I on? Okay. Can we switch uh, okay. computers? <clears throat> okay, there we go. Um, can everybody hear me okay? Uh, uh, not just yet. Um, I'll, I'll get to that. Um, well, anyway, I am really happy and honored to, uh, to be at this MIT forum. I was delighted to be invited, and I was uh, especially pleased to be invited to sit next to David Carr, who is really uh, a giant in the media-watching business and somebody I have uh, followed for years. Uh, I think the last time that David and I met was in June 2009, and we were trading rumors about whether or not his, uh, his employer was going to shut down the Boston Globe or not. And uh, fortunately, the, uh, the Globe has, uh, is doing a little bit better uh, since then and has come up with some interesting funding models, and uh, maybe we'll end up talking about some of those when we, when we get into the discussion. Um, the story that David has referred to a couple of times that he, he said was such a problem to, to, to get through because of the, the, the large train moving down the small tracks, if you haven't had a chance to read it, I strongly recommend it. It's a story about uh, how Chicago real estate mogul um, Sam Zell, uh, who acquired Tribune Company a few years ago, uh, he and his merry band of radio executives have just completely trashed the place. And uh, it's one of those stories that when you started reading it, you said, well, I already knew that Sam Zell trashed the place. And then you read it and you say, oh, my 
God. It's so much worse than I, than I realized. So uh, it, it's an absolutely terrific story, and I really uh, recommend it to, uh, to all of you. It even has dirty parts. Oh, yeah, there's sex in it, too. So, uh, so you definitely want to read it. Um, you know, 15 years ago, we started down this road of newspapers migrating to, uh, to the web. And when we first started down this road, uh, it didn't seem illogical to suppose that once we had gotten rid of the massive printing and distribution costs associated with uh, publishing a traditional newspaper, that uh, the advertising that would flow in uh, would result in a bright and happy new era for everybody. And of course, as we know, a few years after the, uh, the migration to the web began, the advertising business as we knew it fell apart. Um, Craigslist has pretty much wiped out the classified market, which uh, supported 40, 45% of most newspaper revenues. And uh, some non-technological developments, mainly the uh, decline of vibrant downtowns and the rise of big box stores, have taken their toll on display advertising. So although newspapers are indeed migrating to the web, the money somehow stayed behind. And that brings me to a few points that I wanted to make about, uh, here it is. Well, that didn't work. Okay. Uh oh. Hmm. Come and help. I'm just trying to get up a PowerPoint that's on the desktop. There we go. It's it's right there. This is more for my benefit than anything. I, when I see the pictures, I remember what I wanted to say. Um, I am working on, I have a book in progress about the New Haven Independent and the rise of uh, nonprofit community websites. Now, the New Haven Independent is one of about maybe a half dozen really prominent nonprofit news sites that are, that are covering either a community or a state. Uh, probably the best known are Voice of San Diego, MinPost, David mentioned the Texas Tribune, and the New Haven Independent would probably come in right behind them as a really prominent uh, nonprofit site doing good journalism. Now, I took this picture a few weeks ago at their fifth anniversary party. You see Paul Bass, the founder and editor of the Independent on the right, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, it, I, I will call her Ms. Ibrahim because I don't know how to pronounce her first name uh, on the left. And it was really a very remarkable event uh, at which um, people from all walks of life in New Haven um, came in to kind of celebrate five years of this project. And as part of this, uh, Paul is pushing a new funding model for his site, which we'll get to as we move along. I actually may not even use my full 15 minutes. I'm very interested in hearing what's on your mind, but I do think it's interesting to kind of bring through a few uh, ideas about what's going on in New Haven. 
New Haven, of course, is a um, medium size, fairly poor, uh, largely African American and Latino city that um, had fallen on very hard times in the 80s, uh, has been making something of a recovery in recent years, and now because of the recession is really struggling to hold on. Uh, it is served by a large regional newspaper, the New Haven Register. Uh, I will tell you that the Register has a terrible reputation and it's not that bad. Uh, it's not as bad as its reputation. However, it's owned by the Journal Register Company, which only came out of bankruptcy a year ago. And as a uh, commercial enterprise, it is essentially forced to put more of its resources in covering the more affluent suburbs around New Haven uh, than it is on the city itself. So you have this, um, you have this vacuum in the city that the New Haven Independent tries to fill. Paul Bass is a, Paul Bass has a background that, you know, to the extent that David Carr, Paul Bass, and I have a, have, have some commonalities, he came out of the alternative newspaper scene, as did David and I, and, uh, and he uh, came back from a book leave and found he just couldn't go back into doing what he was doing, so he decided to start this project. Um, Essentially, what you have with the New Haven Independent is four full-time reporters and uh, a few full-timers, a uh, few part-timers, just essentially covering anything that moves in the neighborhoods of New Haven. Um, here you have this big coverage of a uh, food co-op that is starting up. Uh, the design, as you can see, the best way I can describe the design is weirdly compelling. I mean, there's nothing beautiful about it. It's done in blog format, but it's really not a blog. You have people going out and really killing themselves doing reporting. Um, the flag is very beautiful, though. It is, and the, the little logo here is as good as it gets. No question about that, the, the guy with the thunderbolts. They work out of the second floor of a... Um, of the local Spanish language newspaper in the heart of New Haven. The contrast with the register, I, I almost feel bad for them, but the con contrast with the register couldn't be more striking. They're in this huge industrial building surrounded by barbed wire next to the interstate. Um, the independent is downtown and easily accessible. Now, there's a, lot, there's a lot of temptation to get hung up on talking about technology when we talk about projects like this. So I'm going to show you what I think is probably the most important piece of technology that the New Haven Independent uses. <laughs> the reporters ride around the city on their bikes. Um, you know, as a result of a recent bicycle accident I had, I can no longer aspire to uh, work for the New Haven Independent. But... Um, you know, it's very simple. They ride around the city with notebooks and smartphones and point-and-shoot cameras and, and uh, cover the city. There's nothing very complicated about it. The technology that they're using um, 15 years ago, we would have been pretty wowed by, but today it's really no big deal. They're, they're simply using a blogging platform 
and uploading all their stuff and making use of Twitter and Facebook to get the word out and doing pictures, stories, and videos. Now, they have managed to expand since they began in 2005. Um, in June of 2009, uh, they began a satellite site called the Valley Independent Sentinel. Um, the Naugatuck Valley, which are some of the grittier suburbs in and around New Haven, um, if we were analogizing this to Boston, we're talking more Malden, Medford, Everett, Chelsea, not Wellesley, Weston, Newton, and those kinds of suburbs. They had been without their own daily paper for about 20 years. Uh, a corporate owner had come in and just one day shut it down. Here in greater Boston, we're still used to every little town having its own weekly, uh, oftentimes a daily. Connecticut has lost a lot of this. So they started this satellite project that covers five towns near New Haven. Um, they got some night funding for that, and so they're doing that. Actually, you see their Twitter feed over here. Their Valley satellite operation is actually a little bit more advanced technologically than New Haven, just because it better reflects the, the people who are doing the Valley. They did this wonderful thing a few months ago where they used a droid to do live video of some sort of an eating contest in a local diner. I mean, you have to love local news to get into that, but it was great. It was, it was really a great thing. They have a statehouse bureau. Uh, a young woman uh, several years ago uh, acquired a one-person statehouse website called the Connecticut News Junkie. And uh, her name is Christine Stewart. And she um, provides statehouse coverage not only for her own site, but to the New Haven Independent. Now, um, the, in addition to nonprofit models, uh, there are also for profit models of doing small time community journalism. Uh, there were two kinds there's the locally owned, uh, this is the Batavian which was started by Howard Owens a few years ago, former big wheel at Gatehouse Media, and they eliminated his job, and he said, can I take the Batavian with me? And they said, be my guest. And uh, so he's making a go of it there. There's Barista Net in northern New Jersey. My hometown. Your hometown, Montclair, New Jersey. Um, very nice, uh, very nice downtown, by the way. Uh, there, closer to home, there's a network of sites called centralmassnews.com, started by a, uh, a, a, uh, a local advertising executive and a former editor for the Metro West Daily News named Jennifer Lord Paluzzi, who got laid off, and now she finds herself editing a, a thriving uh, web of um, for-profit community websites. Uh, that's sort of the locally owned model. There's also the corporate owned model. Uh, there's the wicked local sites that are owned by Gatehouse Media. Uh, there's the Your Town sites that, are being, that have been launched by the Boston Globe, which are expanding by leaps and bounds. And uh, there's Patch.com, which is owned by AOL, and which also seems to be expanding uh, into every town. I, I don't really understand the Patch 
um, um, business plan, by the way, because it seems that in Massachusetts, every town they're moving into is already served by Wicked Local and your town. I would think that they would be looking for towns that are underserved, but, uh, but there you go. There were plenty of towns close to Boston now being served by three or four uh, local news sites. What's odd about this is that at the moment, at least, nonprofit is more lucrative than for-profit. Um, to go back to the New Haven Independent, um, Paul Bass's budget is about $500,000, which isn't bad at all. Now, currently, he gets about 75% of his funding from foundation grants, and about 25% of it is from contributions um, donations, sponsorships, that sort of thing. They are embarking on this um, quest to try to flip that around so that in a few years it would be 75% contributions and 25% foundations. Um, what you see is it's similar to the public radio model is what they're aiming at. The difference, of course, is that public radio is hitting up a much larger area, tends to be very affluent, uh, well-educated, people with money. Uh, what Paul is trying to do is quite a bit more challenging in that he's trying to get contributions out of a community that is smaller and largely poor and, uh, and minority. Uh, on the other hand, his costs are much lower running a website like, running the, the network of websites that he runs is a lot cheaper than running a radio station. And that's really it. I, I just sort of wanted to throw this nonprofit model on the table as something that we may or may want, not want to speak about as the evening goes on. So, uh, so that's all I've got to say for now. Thank you, Dan. What I'd like to do uh, quickly is, uh, pick up on a couple of the themes that came out in, in both of your talks uh, and talk for a few moments, ha have you expand on some of these ideas and then we'll turn it over to the audience. Uh, um, my first reaction, I suppose, is that I'm a little surprised that both of you seem in, on balance to be so optimistic. Uh, one might have expected even just a, a year or two ago that if you had a discussion about what was happening to newspapers and the migration to newspapers online, there would be a lot of doom and gloom. And what I'm really hearing from both of you in different ways is all kinds of new possibilities are opening themselves. Uh, journalism is reinventing itself. Uh, David Carr uh, talks about how the Times is, is uh, ha, ha, uh, about how the Times has, has uh, um, um, in, in, in some sense, the best of both worlds that uh, he's, he's discussed really various forms of hybridization and convergence simultaneously. Uh, and his suggestion that we won't even make distinctions between uh, print versions and online papers or that we won't distinguish between newspapers and other forms of journalistic blogs suggest, suggests uh, some kind of a, a, a very benign form of convergence. So I want to ask both of you, no darker side? Nothing you're nervous about? You don't have anxieties about the way uh, the, apart from the, from the pressure of change, which is itself kind of frightening, uh, about the consequences for you know, what we might think of as news reporting as against opinion? Um, the, 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 
I mean, part of what you're getting is two media writers, and our jobs have gotten a lot more interesting. We used to write about how much the Globe sucked or whether the Washington Post was better or worse than it used to be. Now we're writing about whether they're going to exist or not, and that's a more interesting question. You have to understand, I think, also that in terms of sort of the great fire, most of it, the burn down has occurred. We have one third less reporters than we used to. State house reporters, probably half of what we used to. We've been slowly boiled, so new normal feels somewhat um, okay. I do think that there's a, um, there, there, there's, there's sort of problems, I mean, Paul Bass is like an exemplar of all that is good and true in our business. And I don't mean that in a crunchy granola way. The guy is a great journalist and uh, is an exemplar of all the grand traditions of nonfiction literary journalism. And this is where he's chosen to make a stand. Min Post, same way. You know, you, you, you name Barista Net, where I live, when something happens in my town, that's where people go immediately. What I wonder about is when all these legacy assets, all these people, many of these places are staffed by people who used to work at newspapers and can't stand the thought of getting a real job. And so there's these leftover people from buyouts who are getting by, and that's a whole generation of workers, I'm not saying there's not new talent that aren't doing extraordinary things, but a lot of these sites are built on the backs of people who just can't stand to let go of the newspaper business. And this other issue of foundation funding, foundations are like businesses. They move according to trends and self-interest. Joel Kramer in Minnesota at MinPost in particular has been most aggressive in pursuing this formula of let's flip the pie chart and have, yes, a little foundation money. But believe me, at a certain point, foundation interests will move on and we're gonna have to see what size news capacity can be paid for uh, behind it and there'll be a shakeout. Right now there's a rush of sort of dollars toward innovation, toward new experiments, but it's at a certain point, it's gonna dry up. If you look at the Texas Tribune, what they've done is tried to take something that has a broader sort of statewide interest and really go for the public radio model, go for verticals of interest, people with money, um, and, um, and that's all well and good. But the big hole in the picture is not great big national sites or verticals that cover certain uh, uh, interests, but a um, regional news capacity. And that's um, uh, and that's that's sort of it's it's the Boston's of the world that are threatened. It's the Cleveland's of the world that are that are that are primarily threatened. So I worry about because community papers are doing pretty damn good, and some of the bigger national papers, Wall Street Journal's growing uh, leaps and bounds. Uh, New York Times just announced they're going to pay back that 250 million we borrowed from Carlos Slim. Um, so some of those things, but it's the middle part I worry about. The, the middle part, the smaller. Not the smaller, the middle. You know what I mean, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, major metropolitan newspapers like the Boston Globe, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, the papers in that weight class are indeed the most threatened by, by what has happened here. 
you know, w one of the things that uh, I worry about is, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the Globe would show up on our doorstep at 6 in the morning, and I would go get it, and I'd, I'd say, gee, well, you know, I'm sure that the New York Times would have better international coverage, uh, and I'm sure the Washington Post probably has better political coverage, but this is pretty damn good. And, uh, and, and even more important, it's the only thing I can get. Uh, there was a monopoly that uh, papers like the Globe really benefited from, which allowed them to send their own reporters around the world and across the country to do the full package of local, regional, national, and international news. Um, their mission has pretty much been hollowed out except for that regional space. And it's a really tiny hole in the needle that they have to try to figure out how to thread. Because not only am I relying on the New York Times and NPR for my national and international news, but I'm getting more strictly local news out of the Salem News and the Danvers Herald. So there's only this very, I mean, there's a certain type of regional story that the Globe does very well. But I'm not, it, I think that they're struggling to make themselves essential doing just that kind of story. It, it's, they can do sports better than anybody else. They can do the state house better than anybody else. Obviously, they'll do city stories very well. Uh, but you get beyond that, you know, what is their essential mission th these days? Now, they've got a very energetic new publisher, Chris Mayer. Uh, they have one of the best editors in the business, Marty Barron. And I think that they're doing as good a job as anybody could do of figuring this out. Uh, but I do worry a few years from now, we may conclude that the problem essentially can't be figured out. Just, just one little bit about that. You got to worry about the death by a thousand cuts because you correctly point to sports as a maypole that you can still hang a media franchise. And yet ESPN on the march out into the communities, SB Nation with the different model on the march into, and so the whole, I mean, that's how many young males learned, it was, saw their father reading the sports section. And, it, and sometimes when you look at what happened with classifieds and now sports, it's, it's like the back end of newspapers are getting uh, 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 bit off. And I, I think sports is a great example because there is money there. It's a vertical that you can uh, 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 do stuff with and that some of those national players are going to do a real good job when they come in. ESPN Boston doing a very good job in some ways. I saw the Globe had to credit them on some big local story just the other day. I'd like to, uh, we're, 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 uh, this is my last question, even though I have a million, but I'd, I'd rather hear from you too. But I, there's one um, matter that, uh, and, and, and in fact, I may intervene again as we go on because there are certain parts of this story that I hope will, uh, this problem or this, this discourse that I hope we'll confront before our time together is up. But I want to, David, I want to ask you one question about something, you, you hinted at this in your talk, but in your email to me, you talked about it in greater detail. 
and it had to do with the idea that uh, we have these sort of larger branding agencies that house individual reporters, but that what's begun to happen is that inside that house, the individual reporter begins to generate an enormous number of followers, partly because sometimes they're on Twitter, as you are, uh, partly sometimes because particular bloggers begin to generate followers and so forth. And I wonder if you'd expand on that. I mean, if you think that that's a, a distinctive new feature of, of, of our journalistic environment. Those of you who are interested in this issue, I wouldn't keep an eye on people like me or Howard Kurtz or Howard Fine. I'd look at Brian Stelter, a young colleague of mine, and he is, he's the kind of guy that moves his elbow and content just comes flying out. And it's just like, I was just talking to you, you were Twittering while I was talking to you, People got back to you, you turned that into a blog post, holy shit, you're on page one. And it's like, whoa. The act of consuming media and producing media is not two discrete acts in the native digital generation. So you have this guy that is just monster productive, super smart, a great colleague, well-voiced, great connected, and he's at I think 22, we hired him, and he immediately became a star. If you're looking for a canary in a coal mine, I'd watch that guy and see if, if he becomes similarly sort of um, gets the velvet handcuffs that the, a place like the New York Times can put on you, which is your calls get taken, your stories have bounce, or if at a certain point he's going to feel... Uh, um, entrepreneurially motivated, and he's not gonna wanna deal with the larger apparatus there. Um, it isn't enticing new people in, it's keeping them excited and producing, uh, sort of going forward. And they will build out brands. I mean, when, when my Twitter started to get kind of big, they said, you've got a picture of like three old ladies as your avatar, and your, your name is Car2N, by the way, your bio language is pretty spicy. And uh, can we get a little New York Times in there? I said, I got a great idea. How about I not do it? <laughs> that sound good? You up for that? This is mine. I won't swear on it. I won't embarrass you. I have whatever chip you guys have issued and put into my rear end deeply embedded in me, and I won't embarrass you, but please don't tell me what to do with this Twitter, because I know what I'm doing. That negotiation is an interesting one. And the Times, oddly enough, you know, which is not exactly a sort of give it a world place, has, um, <laughs> has their, their pattern. You don't see us with a bunch of rules around Twitter. Uh, Brian Stelter, my colleague, got in a jam for tweeting a, uh, uh, a meeting that we we're having, was there some big wrist slap or new edict or da-da-da? No, they just said, geez, wish you wouldn't do that. And that was it. We just kept going. I always, right before I hit the button on those 140 characters, I think, mm, what would my editor think of this? That's okay. And push it. I pushed the button on a few I regret. But I, I do think that there's now a negotiated space between the larger brand and the, and, and, and the smaller brands that make, up, make it up. Well, one implication of what you're saying is that, today, that, that journalists and reporters today have to, in a certain sense, be 
masters of the, of the immediate communication technologies in order to proceed, that they can't just be writers any longer. They have to be ready to, uh, do, to do video, to do tweeting, to do blogs, that sort of thing. I, I had a weird experience where um, I covered the Oscars for four years doing um, uh, blogging every day and making video. And I went, um, I went out to the West Coast to the Globes or something like that. I walked up to Brad Gray, who runs Paramount. I said, hi, Mr. Gray, my name's David Carr. I work at the New York Times. I cover the awards for He said, I know you. I have, my, I have you on my, my uh, iTunes. He was getting a steady feed of my videos every single week. And I hadn't even thought of the implications of this guy hasn't met me, and yet he has. And he was like more than willing to talk with me and stuff. And that was a light bulb moment for me. You know, I would add to that that the New York Times really seems to get a lot of this, and you contrast that with the Washington Post, which, frankly, I think in a lot of ways is just utterly lost these days. Uh, interestingly enough, a year or so ago, the Post handed down uh, this, this series of edicts for how people need to behave on Twitter that was just hilarious. It was just widely mocked by everybody who read them. And Howard Kurtz, uh, then still safely ensconced at the Washington Post, uh, put out a tweet that said something to the effect of, from this point forward, I will only be tweeting recipes. <laughs> and you see what happened. I mean, this week he announced that he's leaving for the Daily Beast. And uh, I know one of the first things he was asked was, uh, you know, does, does the Post's rather uh, troglodytic policies involving uh, social media and other new, new forms of media, did that have anything to do with your decision to leave? And of course he's saying, oh, no, 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 it had nothing to do with it. But, you know, the Post just lost one of their biggest assets, and a year ago he was making fun of them for not getting uh, where, uh, where our business is going. So uh, it's, it's hard not to draw the conclusion. You have to, as a writer, just say, let me get this straight. You'll put me on the front page of your paper. You'll trumpet me everywhere. You'll put me on issues of public moment in which that have tremendous implications into the lives of everyone. Uh, but you don't want me to tweet. There's just, you know, you, you have to buy into the entire asset and trust that she or he is going to do a good job for you on all platforms, regardless of what it is. You know, it's not like I'm going to get up here and say a bunch of swear words, shit, just that I'd try it, um, and make the New York Times look horrible. Um, but at the same time, I'm going to be me, you know, while I do it. Uh, now it's time for the audience to intervene, ask questions, respond. Start here. Uh, there are microphones. It'd be good to speak into the microphone. This is recorded for some audio um, posterity, so identify yourself as well as you. Mark Tomizawa, Six Degrees of Innovation. Uh, we're creating a commons where unspeakable good ideas about the civic infrastructure of our country, our neighborhoods, can uh, get an honest hearing so that people from a lot of different sectors and silos can stop being professionals, talk about really good ideas that they could never mention at work. Um, I'm fascinated by all this. I just want to share something and, and see if you have a response to it. There's always been a fight between institutions and the people who control top down and creative talent. And if you look at all the industries this happens in, Hollywood tries to control the artists, 
the recording industry tries to control the artists and their output. This is very old. 1913, there was a, a report called The Iron Fist of the Oligarchy. And it was a leftist guy who said, why is it that all my favorite organizations end up crushing the people they're supposed to help? There is this tendency of institutions to crush individuality. Some of that is practical. They create order. But in creating the order, they eliminate the in-between that is innovation. It's the in-between stuff that moves everything forward. And the classic business example is Polaroid, where they had instant photography of the chemistry variety. And it was fine until people started walking and saying, oh, digital, get out of my office. We're chemists. If you look at all this that we're talking about, we see the same wars going on. The TV people saying, we can't do that. That's not TV. The platform wars. So I'm curious about whether anyone has taken the black box approach that was used to create the stealth bomber, for example, where you protect a ring of innovators within the organization and you give them free reign. It's like a charter zone within, an enterprise zone within the major organization. And you let them experiment like crazy. When um, the head of the Miami Herald, uh, what's Tom's last name? He was uh, editor. He's now at VU. Fiedler. Oh, Tom Fiedler, yes. He pushed everybody in. He says, we're now all digital. And they went, what? Aren't we going to deliver it? He says, no, you're in the deep end. And that actually was the key, because then everybody had to find somebody who knew how to help them do the thing they didn't know how to do. So in that, the younger journalists learned the older best practices, and the older journalists learned how to be like network animals. And people came up and thanked them afterwards. If they had deliberated, they never would have gotten there. So the implicit, I guess the questions are, are we having too much deliberation and not enough free-form experimentation? Are we creating any zones of innovation within traditional media? And if not, are outside people needed to be kind of network inside outsiders so you have co-conspirators in the process? So thanks for being here. I hope there's a question in there somewhere that you like. I have a, like a two, like a very short reaction to that. And that is, I think on the journalistic side of things, news organizations do not get nearly enough credit for being innovative. I think there's been a tremendous amount of innovation in journalism in the last 10 or 15 years. The real problem is that the advertising business fell apart. And if there's uh, any innovation to be done in figuring out how to, uh, how to bring news organizations and advertising back together, uh, I, I think maybe that's where some of the focus ought to be. Um. Uh, three things. One is we do have a skunk works upstairs at our shop where all these propeller heads and mad scientists do God knows what. And every once in a while they come down and, and we, have, we have a real exchange with them. Like one of their real hot dogs is now a blogger for us, you know, and there's been uh, back and forth. So that's one thing. Another thing, I think the difference between us and the Washington Post is they kept their two enterprises discreet for a while. We had the good fortune of moving into a building together. And, and when you begin to see other people, like when I first started doing my blog about the Oscars, I said, I have all this traffic, millions and millions of hits on Oscar Day. My comments are terrible. And the guys next to me just said, oh, you want comments? And they just 
like hit a few dials and told me, look, end in a question mark, solicit participation, be provocative at the back end of your post, and also it all uh, uh, comes in. The other thing that I think has happened is, and I couldn't agree with Dan more in that, in that um, when it, it's a necessity as a mother, and so really calcified institutions are much more willing to throw sticks up in the air. Last um, spring, I said, you know what? I'm going to do, people are consuming video. I want a fully enabled studio in my basement, and I'm going to make one-minute videos every morning. And I'm going to edit them and upload them myself, and I'll have no intermediation. So they said, okay, we'll come out, we'll hook it up. It's, it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so they do it. And I make them, and they look like hostage videos. They're terrible. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, next idea, next thing. And now I do have sit down with Brian Stelter every single week, and we do this media Dakota and da-da-da. But over and over, it's like, yeah, we'll try that. We'll give that a whirl. You know, one, th one thing about the, uh, I mean, it's such a vast topic, and I'm a little frustrated because we can j jump across so many different interesting issues, but I am, am, am especially interested in what, uh, in what we might call the three versions of the New York Times that you can find online. I mean, it's not, there's not just one version. There's Times Reader, which tries to, rep with certain exceptions, replicates the experience of the, tries to replicate the experience of the paper of the print paper. Then there's the actual online times, which is an infinitely richer source of information, but from a makeup standpoint, from a visual, from, a, from, a, from an aesthetic standpoint, can't even begin to be compared to the, to the beauty and genius of the, of the printed paper, which has had a century to learn how to do its thing. Uh, and uh, uh, one issue, I think, in some ways, is, is how conscious the Times itself is of the problems that are involved in actually having three different platforms that they're managing simultaneously. You forgot our iPad application, too. That's right. Which is terrible. Surprising. Such a digital... Well, that's because it's so new, probably, presumably. No, Wall Street Journal came out of the gate. Gorgeous, smart, wonderful. What what it is is we we we're coming up on putting in a, a a metered model that makes it complicated, and we already had a deal with Amazon, so somewhere between the web, which I don't agree with your aesthetic analysis, I think it's it 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 may not be the the gorgeous artifact, but it's a remarkable thing beginning with our 2.0, it's navigability. We took everything that was good on the web, stole it, and made it our own which is what web, web innovation is. The problem is, as you correctly, I think, point out, you can't get to the end of it. You just, <clears throat> there's not a feeling of, I've, I've accomplished something. You feel like you're down a hobbit hole. For, <laughs> you, you know, it's just like, where does this, this thing end? And they, you get done with this, and oh, we've got a photo tell from uh, the Fashion Week, and oh, look, here's, a four-minute combat video from Iraq. It's just like, where to look after a while. You first. I've been a long-time subscriber to the New York Times in his guise as a forest products company. Here come the delivery problems. And uh, <laughs> then I... Uh, 
took part in a group that was concerned with carbon footprint, and I dropped my paper subscription and moved to the newsreader. And I tried to pay for the newsreader, but I couldn't succeed in making the transition. The Times couldn't handle that transaction. Now I read it for free. I shouldn't, I keep occasionally trying to pay for it. Um, and I also read the Times on my Droid phone. Um, my son has never subscribed to a paper. He lives on the other coast, um, but he could subscribe to the Times there. Um, and I think the younger generation is pretty much in his space. And I'm kind of concerned about the existence of institutions like the Times, which do bring value as institutions. Um, but at the same time, I recognize the point you're making about you know, social media and whatnot. And this makes me think that I just read a few days ago that Don Graham is a board member of Facebook. And I wonder what is the disconnect between his engagement and the fact that it's not valued at the post. Um, well, a couple things. One is Facebook is probably the most significant referral engine of newspapers today. So that's, and Don Graham's one of the smartest guys around. So I, I think it's a natural fit. This deal about, you know, I've tried to give you money and you wouldn't take it. Yes, can we? Really an important sort of point. And you wonder, why, if you guys are going to go to a metered model, are you waiting till 2011? Because it hasn't gone very well in the past. We're looking at getting in an e-commerce business. And we don't want a third party. We don't want Steve Jobs between you and us. We want to own all the customer data. Once we got our dirty little hands on your credit card, we can do all sorts of things with you. And we can move you <laughs> along a vertical axis, axis of value. We've had a good luck with, with maximizing consumer revenues with people that we have. We're working hard to get it right. One other thing you should think about, and I think the FT has demonstrated this, is, <clears throat> okay, your, your kids probably not going to be visiting the New York Times 20 times in a month, so they're not going to bump up against our wall. But you, however, are, and we're going to say, hey, we want you to pay a convenient starch, like I do for the Wall Street Journal. I could get the Wall Street Journal any part of it that I wanted because I know how to work the web. I just want to be able to go across it freely. FT, same way, I pay them. And behind that wall, there's another new ad business of wantedness of people who opted in. And so the FT, when they have this customer, you know, Hey, this guy goes to Singapore all the time. And we know that about him, and he's into this news. You end up, so we don't have to just sell against Huff, Huffington Post or sell against Gawker, and it, that, that we can, behind this wall, develop a new ad business to go with these new consumer revenues. I'm not saying it's going to work out or it's going to be great, just that that's one of the possibilities. Can I just interrupt and say I'm really bummed out all you younger people in the back won't come and talk to us. So <laughs> I'll give somebody a dollar US if, 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 
if the bag ventures well the stop He up. thinks you're young because Who's, he can't really see that. You gotta figure out, does he qualify? Yeah, so you're a buck. Go ahead, sir. Hi, I'm, I'm one of these old-fashioned people who still gets the Boston Globe and the Somerville Journal delivered to me. I'm not quite sure why I'm still getting these print editions because it seems like by the time I, I look at them, I've read a lot of what's in them already. So my question is, you know, at what point do you think those are going to go away and there's not going to be a print edition of you know, either our little local weekly or you know, big national New York Times? You know, Ron, a few years ago, I thought that print editions were, were doomed in fairly short order. And I'm not sure I think that anymore. Um, one of the ways that the Boston Globe has kind of achieved some stability in the last year was that they took the print edition and said, instead of looking at this as our mass distribution model, uh, let's make this kind of a specialty product for people who are willing to pay for the convenience of getting it. And as you know, they took the print edition of the Globe and, and jacked the price up through the roof. And, and in so doing, even longtime customers like me ended up taking the Sunday paper and then subscribing to Globe Reader the rest of the week. Uh, but the thing is, it worked. It worked. Their, their circulation plummeted again, which made perfect sense given what they were charging for it. Uh, but their revenue from print um, uh, went up substantially. And, 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 it, and as I said, it allowed them to achieve some measure of stability. Now, the other aspect of that that's kind of neat if you're the publisher of the Boston Globe, and this gets to the point that David was talking about with uh, people reading the FT and, oh, you go to Singapore all the time. If you're shrinking the print edition, uh, shrinking the, the circulation of the print edition and charging a ton for it, all of a sudden, the readership of the print edition is smaller but maybe more desirable to advertisers than it was before. So that becomes another reason for keeping the print edition. Of course, the problem is, if the print edition is becoming a profitable center because it's appealing to uh, ever more affluent readers, is that going to affect the news judgment? And and, and ever older readers, uh, yeah, exactly. That uh, that ends up affect that can end up affecting the news judgment, which would be a shame. If if you've got, if your readers are are suddenly really rich and and not connected to Boston particularly, there isn't necessarily an awful lot of incentive to do ongoing in depth coverage of the Boston school system, for instance. But I do think that there's a lot of life left in the print edition because. That is still, to a large extent, where the money is. Uh, I, I, the discussion is growing livelier the, the, uh, the more we hear from the audience. Let me encourage both audience and panelists to be concise. We have about 45 minutes. Let's try to do as, get as much in as we can. I want to hear from you also, though, on that. Um, I'm totally with Dan, and I, I think we're going to end up with Dave Eggers, uh, the novelist, made a gorgeous uh, one-time paper uh, out in San Francisco, and um, it it was like this luscious print artifact, and you, you just went, 
and when I looked at it, I thought, mm, that's where we're headed, is we're going to have, that the, 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 the print thing is going to be a, a, a curio, a treasure, a luxury artifact. We might even start to see better paper, and it'll become a tchotchke, an accessory to be seen with, and uh, 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 a totem of status, and not just among... Uh, you know, it, 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 there, there, there is a back-to-paper movement among some young people, and um, it could become somewhat fashionable. Part of the problem with the Kindle, part of the problem with the, the iPad is you can't really see what I'm reading. So you can't, you know what I mean? I, the, the, there was a woman across the train from me that was reading uh, Winter's Bone, and I just said, I totally just read that book. Isn't that great? And we had a wonderful time, and... I assign meaning to her having that. And there's not a signaling that goes on. Um, <coughs> she couldn't see that I'm reading the corrections on my iPad. But the so. fact that you both have iPads signals something. Uh, she didn't have one, though. She was reading a normal, <laughs> normal book. But iPad just says either rich, trendy, or nerdy. <laughs> it doesn't say winner's bone reader. You know what I mean? So. And that's something that swinging, I get four papers a day at home and love it. And I'm one of the most webby people I know, but I just, I, 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 I enjoy the, the music of print. There's been a little bit of discussion here about money and advertising. And it seems to me that uh, both of you, or all three of you have figured out that it's, it's not really the collapse of the market is the collapse of the advertising market, and that spreads across a whole variety of media. So I would like you to talk a little bit about the state of the advertising market, if you know it today, and about what you think are the future income sources for newspapers, magazines, television, radio, and those kinds of things, if advertising changes, which it seems like it's going to have to do. I think that adds, <coughs> it's, it, it's great that you landed us there because <coughs> we've had a discussion about sort of se secular aspects and it's like where, where are we in the cycle? I think ads overall be back anywhere from 4 to 6% this year. What is slice of pie going to be? Who, who is, is going, going, going to get what? That, that discussion, I think, is... I, I think the smartest thing that got said here, which is what Dan said, the publishing model came on to the web, real lickety-tickety-boo. It was great. When I worked at Inside.com in 2000, I thought, this is an amazing technology. I published an item about the, the president's airplane. Uh, the campaign plane within 40 minutes lit up, followed, and I, I just went, "Wow, this is amazing!" Problem: the ad model that came with it. It's it, it. At first, we thought it was dollars for dimes. Now it turns out dollars for pennies because there's no scarcity of content on the web, and all content is commoditized. And sites like the Huffington Post and Gawker have been able to replicate not just our content, but our audience away from us. And so we end up competing with them. Part of what you're seeing with these fenced off sites, I think a little bit, is an effort to replicate that 
scarcity. Tiffany's has been upper right in our newspaper, page three, for over 100 years, every single day. They're there. Until we beef up the ad side and figure out how do we replicate the idea of scarcity and a placement on the web such that we can leverage price up from pennies to dimes, maybe one day dollars. That's the big fight. Um, print has tried to do a video like I was making these videos and I just did about the Oscars and they said, we want you to do more and more and more. I'm like, it's like some homeless guy on a red carpet. What do you even, it's weird. I mean, it turned out they didn't have enough inventory and they want, it, advertisers want motion on motion, right? And so it's like, I think we've done a really good job. Sometimes when you open up your paper, the Times on the web, there's this, some goofy, whatever the heck it is, but we're trying all manner of different things to get, it isn't, we already have audience, we have more audience, than, I think we've got 25 million uniques this month, more audience we ever had, it's a global one. It's how do we perform a cash act to me on them. Sure. Um, you know, a few years ago, I, I think so, a lot of this is, is broad changes in the culture as much as it is, as it is technology. I mean, I'd, I don't even need to say Craigslist except to say Craigslist. You all get it. But you look beyond that. A few years ago, I was interviewing a guy who had sold a community radio station in Salem uh, to a Spanish-language religious broadcasting network. And I, I, I said, come on, why did you do this? I mean, this, this was kind of an asset to the community and, and now it's just been taken out of play completely. And he said, you know, when I started in this business, uh, I could walk down the street and there were 12 or 15 banks and I could walk into any one of them and try to pitch them on an ad. And now there are, you know, two banks, three banks. Uh, there, were, there was retail all along Main Street. It's all gone into the mall, and they don't advertise much. Uh, so advertising may come back a bit, but I don't think it's coming back that much. Um, recently, I saw a statistic that in Japan, the reader pays for something like 87% of the cost of a newspaper. Whereas in this country, traditionally, the news has been free. It's the paper and the delivery that you're paying for. Uh, so I think that if we're going to preserve journalism, um, preserve professional journalism, and, and by the way, I'm not, it's, it's not 100% clear to me that, that there's a huge desire to do that. But if we're going to preserve that, we are going to have to move toward a model in which the user um, pays for a much larger share of the content. Now, I mentioned the New Haven Independent and nonprofits. That's kind of an indirect way of the user paying for the content through foundation grants and contributions and things like that. The direct way, and we're starting to see this uh, more and more, is through uh, news organizations like the Boston Globe, like the New York Times, beginning to charge for certain types of electronic delivery. Um, 
eat both the Globe and the Times are going to continue to have substantial com uh, content on the web that will continue to be free. Uh, they're, they're pursuing two very different models, by the way, but, um, but, but basically that's the idea. But what you're seeing is, in addition to charging a lot for the print edition, which I mentioned, uh, you're starting to see charges for different types of electronic delivery that people will pay for for convenience. Uh, they will pay for a Kindle edition. Uh, they will pay for an iPad edition. They will pay for one of these reader editions. Uh, it's great. You can download the whole thing. You don't have to have an internet connection uh, after you've downloaded it, and then you can read it on the train. And, and these are all different ways of getting revenue from the reader, uh, moving away from this idea that... Um, that, uh, that advertising will pay for it all, because we now know that advertising is not going to pay for it all. Um, I do wonder about charging for basic web access. I, I, I have a problem with that. As I said, the Globe and the Times plan are both very nuanced, although in very different ways. Uh, maybe they're stumbling towards some sort of a solution to this. I don't know. But clearly the reader's going to have to pay more if, if they want professional journalism. One, one thing I want to say about this ad thing, just to slide it over to the digital side, some of you were business-oriented folks. Big, as Dan pointed out, great big national organizations, local organizations say, local, that's where all the money is. And you look at this vast beach of revenues, of, of, and we're, we're, and we're going to have location base, and there's falafel around the next corner, and it's the best in town, and great, great, great. You're up against the tyranny of small numbers. It costs a lot of money to go and get that money. And unless you're highly automated, unless, unless the, the advertiser themselves is doing the work, sending you the money to go out and, and get all those little granular ads that would make a great uh, site is a huge pain in the ass and is really non-economic as it's currently set up. I'm, I'm 20, well, first, I just want, I miss your Oscar blog a lot, by the way. I, I love that. But um, Thank you. I, I did, I enjoyed the carpetbagger and the video with the light thing. Um, I'm 26, I, but I go through this phase every couple of months where I cancel my papers and then I miss them and then I subscribe to them again and have them delivered. It's like a love-hate <laughs> relationship. We break up all the time. You're just um, trying to get the discount. And that, <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, one thing that uh, when I have, I talked to, I have some friends in the press, and I talk to them occasionally. But I have a lot, I keep a number of email lists with various groups of friends. And when the Globe came out and said they were going to do the paywall, I just asked them. I said, are, "How many of you guys? You know, they read Boston.com." And I said, "How many of them are going to? How many of you would pay for this? None. And they're all about my age group. None of them. And that just sort of. And they all said they would go to somewhere else and get it for free. And then that occurred to me is, well, what happens when everybody goes to a paywall? Where are you going to go? And, and, and it just, how do you change that mentality that news isn't free? How do you make, re realize, make somebody realize that you have, you know, this reporter has to eat. He has to, has to pay his electric bill, and they have to pay for a photographer, and you have to pay for, you know, a recorder and things like that. How do you, how do you convince somebody? How do you make people realize that this is something that's worth paying for? Here's a problem that the Globe is facing, 
this is the website of WBUR Radio, uh, which is the leading uh, news public radio station in Boston. I, I want to make sure I say that word news because one of my part-time employers is WGBH Radio, and, and we're more commentary and talk shows and analysis. Um, this is, uh, you, you know, you take a look at this site, and I, I think that people at the Globe have to be wait, um, staying up late worrying every night as to whether their paywall can compete with a free service such as this. And as the website of a public radio station, WBUR.org, is always going to be free. Now, is it as thorough and in-depth as the Globe on a lot of these local and regional stories? Uh, no, but um, I think the fear that the Globe ought to have is that for a lot of people, they will find that something like this is good enough because it is pretty good. It, it really is. Now, what the Globe is doing is they're taking their website and essentially dividing it in half. They have this incredibly successful free website, boston.com, that uh, gets, gets about uh, 5 million um, unique visitors a month. And, uh, and, and they're going to take out a lot of the Globe content and put that behind a paywall. So they're trying to figure out how much Globe content will we continue to give away, how much of it will be exclusive to Boston.com. It's, uh, it's going to be very difficult. And, uh, and I see another really good example coming up here to my right. And it's not just .orgs that are... Um, uh, this is TBD, a Washington news site. And... Um, they're part of Albritton, uh, Albritton Communications um, uh, Federation of Television Stations. They're the people that brought you Politico. And let me tell you, I, I agree with you, pretty good is, you know, Clay Shirky, I think, coined this. Pretty good is often good enough. TBD is better than pretty good. And when the shooter, and this is, what, a three-month-old site, four-month-old site, when the Washington... Uh, the guy took over Discovery, hostage situation. TBD went crazy. And what did Washington Post end up with? A feed, a video feed from TBD. Humiliating moment, you know. You know, a news brand that was decades old leaning on TBD, which had the existing relationships with television station. And I do think it's going to create a situation where you guys are hunters and gatherers. You're going to find what you need. What we have to do is, like at my newspaper, is make a business out of people who have to have exactly what we have whenever they want it. And we don't need, we don't need 25 million people to give us money. We need 2 million people to give us money, the most regular, the people that want access to the archives. And then we're going to induce them with special delivery products. Do you want DealBook on your desktop every single second? There's something going on. If you're an Oscar freak, do you want me to like come and tell you who's going to win? Blah 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 blah. A series of specialty products that will be an inducement. One thing that I think I've tried to talk our guys into is invite them in. The people who are our most trusted subscribers, let them start um, overseeing content. Let them, you know, kind of Tom Sawyer approach where you say, 
you know, you're kind of part of the family here. And one of the inducements is you do a bunch of free work for us. Seems good. Well, you know, so much is happening. There's so many changes taking place that sometimes uh, we get to the, we, we, we find ourselves in a circumstance in which uh, certain kinds of changes seem so modest and minor that they don't even sort of get on the radar. But if you think about the simple way in which in the online times, there are, David mentioned this a little while ago, that the reader, the readers themselves have have a kind of participatory access to so many of them. Now, that's an incredibly minor and technologically very simple feature of the newspaper, but think of how it profoundly transforms the reader's relation to the material if he or she feels that when a significant article appears or a significant column appears, he or she can jump in and give her opinion or or, or, or argue with what, 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 ha, what has been said. And that happens today in the online newspaper world thousands and thousands of times every day. The, the, I think, I think our, the, the environment is so complex that we, that we uh, and, and so diverse that we have trouble sort of focusing on the elements in it that seem truly distinctive in terms of how our journalism is changing. Up here. Oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're next, then you. We go to the, this side first. I'll cut. Um, hi, I'm Laura McGann. I write for the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard. My question is about um, Buzz in the New York Times newsroom. I, what do writers think about the wall? Is there anxiety about your work being behind the wall, or are, is that not an issue? Um, well, I'll just say this first about um, the, the Neiman Lab. If any of you are sort of press wonks and want to know what's going on. I don't think anybody's doing sort of deeper, quicker takes than what you guys are doing right now. I do all my reading on Twitter. People ask me what I read. I read Twitter. <laughs> it's a human-enabled RSS that sends me deep, rich links. I curate my followers closely. And a lot of what I see is your work. So good on you. Um, the wall is... Um, uh, our wall is going to be set back a ways, so you're, you, you can come, you can come, you can come, and then probably on the 15th or 20th time, it's like, oh, by the way, this is how we eat. Are you interested in participating? Um, where the, the, where we, we begin to ask people for a kind of um, convenience charge for coming in over and over. The available metrics say... What he said, which is bubkis, like everybody's just going to go, no, right? I don't think so. I do think that there's, um, and the question is, and this goes to what we were talking about with Stelter. Yeah, is, the, like the, the coal mine. I mean, are the, your good writers going to jump and want their stuff on the Daily Beast because they want, I mean, if you're a writer, do you want 250 million eyeballs or do you want 2 million paying eyeballs? And as a writer, what do you want? Well, true, true that. But but I, I, I do not think that our visibility, we're, we're still going to be optimized for web crawlers. And you can still, I mean, there's nothing more visible than being sort of in the New York Times. It's only in the doing that we're going to find out where um, it begins to uh, become apparent that visibility is dropping. I will tell you that when we did... Um, 
times, times select, select yes. times that that they, they were putting all the columnists behind it. And I just I just started doing a column for the New York Times and I was like, I am not Maureen Dowd, I am not Joe Nocera, I am like David Schmeckler, nobody knows who I am or what I do. Please don't put me behind that wall. Please don't. Now, how am I gonna feel, you know, eight, eight years later with a partial wall? We'll see. People are not worried about it yet till it's not because it's not until January. And here's the thing, as long as the ad dollars keep on the grow, you can see it might take a little longer to get that wall going. And it might get set back a little farther. One of the beauties of our model is you can turn the wall up or down and that it's got some dials on it. So it, I, I believe that visibility for writers is gonna be really important, but people aren't, uh, um, they're not worried about it yet. They'll be much keening once it, once it happens. Hi, my name is Adam Hassler. Um, I, uh, I think one thing that hasn't really been discussed yet, and this may or may not be within the purview of what we're talking about, but I know about a, a very significant amount of the journalism that I read is um, cultural criticism, like arts journalism, um, performance arts, things like that. I know Seattle has one full-time arts critic left, like among all of their newspapers. And so one thing I wonder about is, I. Publications have had a, a, a very long past as being um, tastemakers, having a huge impact on what we consider to be part of our aesthetic canon, or you know what you know, if a show made it or didn't, or restaurant critics who like one bad review, like their restaurant's done, and you know there are still some really big names out there in arts criticism, like Roberta Smith in New York, um, Blake Gopnik in D.C., but like 90%, 95% of what I read are like blogs and stuff. I mean, like, that's all where all the good stuff is. And so, you know, I can only read about Richard Serra so many times. I, every once in a while, I have to read about like new stuff that's coming on, and none of the people at New York Times are talking about that stuff. You know, meanwhile, the 26, 27-year-old blogger who went to art school, they have their finger on their pulse, and they're talking about the best stuff, and they're on blogs. And so I was just wondering what impact you think this online migration is having on newspaper as tastemaker. I think that, um, you know, I like to, sometimes I like to say that, that blogs have not made professional journalism irrelevant, except in two areas. I, I think that blogs have pretty much replaced the op-ed page. And uh, I think that blogs have moved in on a lot of the turf that you're talking about for uh, arts criticism and, uh, and, and, you know, restaurant reviews and, and all that stuff. Um, you know, you talk about the aesthetic of good enough. I mean, I think that a lively food blog uh, just ends up being more interesting to people than waiting for the newspaper to come out. Now, Boston, like most major cities, has a uh, very vibrant alternative weekly, and the executive editor of that will be speaking in a few minutes, I believe. And their heart and soul is, is, is arts journalism, and they still do a really, really good job of it. But now, instead of just competing with a few other publications, they're competing with everybody. And, uh, and, and I think that is very hard. And you see book reviews being shut down and less arts coverage and, and less food coverage. 
It's, uh, it, it's not something that people necessarily look to newspapers for anymore. Um, there, is on the, there is on our website, if you go into the archives, a forum on this topic, uh, arts criticism and what's happening to arts criticism. And, I, and, and uh, one of the points that was made, it, uh, that was made at that forum uh, was that uh, the local arts community, especially the arts institutions in the community, the theaters and the art galleries, are the ones who are suffering the most because of the general disappearance of this kind of discourse, because it's affecting their attendance, it's affecting the, their sort of mm. publicity. One, one of the, I, first of all, is just a lovely question, a really well put. Um, something I think a lot about. A couple of things. One is, let's take food for an ex example. New York food blogs, frantic, crazy, really good. Uh, all sorts of players. New York Magazine has moved in just ferociously. And then there's all these independent blogs and there's something called Midtown Lunch. And those two things, if you're from New York, you'd say, well, they don't go together. Um, but when, wh what are they all preoccupied by? When we name Sam Sifton, my old boss, uh, the chief critic, food critic of the New York Times, that was DEFCON 4 for, oh, like a month and a half. And so it's not just, I think the question of authority is very important, but at times the blogosphere reinforces an authority and at times they disperse it. In film, I think it's much more acute. The uh, city after city, indeed many alternative weeklies, letting go of their sui generis local critics and opting for commodity criticism or letting f film blogs take the weight. The other threat is about just the very nature of authority, which is who is a trusted source for us? I was, I'm a frantic movie grower. I would always check Metacritic, which would synthesize and come up with an aggregate number of the reviews and look at critics I knew. Now a lot of times I'll just pop onto the Twitter and say, have you seen X and X? What did you think? Those are my people. And I think that there's, there's a, that sort of disperse, dis, dispersal of authority is a threat over the long term for newspapers, which let's remember, our paper and others make most of their money off that back end, the movie ads, all that stuff, so. Well, Dan blew my cover. Um, <laughs> my name's Peter Kazis, and I, I will now say I work at the Boston Phoenix. Actually, first, I, I wanted to do two things. First, um, to report on an experience I had as, as being, um, I'm sure I was one of many, but I was surveyed by the New York Times. It began online right before they made their announcement that they were going. And I, I have to say that, um, I like participating in surveys if it's something I want. And you know, one day I'm on the New York Times site looking for something, and then at it, it a, a very convenient point time in my, my experience online, up came, could you answer some questions? And you know, I, I did. It was an incredibly thorough, um, very, very uh, smart survey that first was doing all the usual stuff. And they kept asking you if you wanted to go on, and it had to have been programmed in some way that 
there was some computer intelligence back there feeding questions to me based on what my previous answers were. I was actually back at headquarters putting my hands slowly up your skirt, <laughs> but go ahead. But I, I'm, just to say that the experience, and then, you know, that led to an email thanking me for doing it. Would I do another thing online? And I, I did several of these until I finally spoke with a real life person. I'm going to be fascinated to see what they come out with because the research was impressive. I'm in a way a bad person because even though I answered the way I hoped the pay model would go, I'm going to buy it anyway. I mean, I buy the New York Times seven days a week in print. I use it online. I mean, but just an experience because so much is talked about here, this what's going to happen when the, the Times paywall goes out. The second was I just wanted to make an observation. That, you know, um, I, I agree 100% with you guys, you, you know, about the, the squeeze being in the middle, the regional papers. Um, my view, not firmly held, because no one in their right mind has a firm view about these things, is that mass and class are what's going to be around in five or 10 years. Um, um, you know, uh, TMZ, the, the gossip sites will be, you know, the mass, the class will be the New York Times, the Guardian, the Wall Street Journal, in a handful of other places. But audience, I think, in a way that none of us have figured out yet is the key. And, and the, let me give you one example from the Phoenix from many years ago. Um, we do a lot of live concerts, and sometimes the bands we present go on to be big deals. Um, we did a concert with Green Day. Some people who were from Boston may remember this. This was what, Dan? You were there, I think, 15 years ago? Yeah, 94, I think. Okay. And um, make a long story short, Green Day played one and a half songs, and there was, in effect, a riot. People, the cops didn't know what moshing and stuff was. I heard he started it. Yeah. <laughs> what happened the next day was um, one thing, we had warned the police what was gonna happen, and they didn't listen. But as a result, they didn't rat us out, we didn't rat them out. Anyway, flash forward the next Monday, there's a call from Budweiser. I happen to be in the ad director's office. They said, oh, this will be interesting. Budweiser was and still is one of our biggest advertisers. I said, how did you guys do this? We wanna buy more ads. <laughs> the lesson to this was, you know, they want, Trust me, the Green Day audience is a beer-drinking audience. They may smoke a lot of pot, but they drink a lot of beer. That's a very simple, simple thing. But here's an example of what, uh, how papers like The Globe are in trouble. Levine, the great conductor, returns. Front page news in the New York Times. Um, people page news in the Boston Globe. Now, by the way, it... it the Globe did a fine job with the way they handled it. But in the long run, that New York, that, that class, what I'm calling the class audience, will is slowly deserting the Globe, and they'll be consolidating around the New York Times. Um, uh, this, this is going to happen all over the place. Um, but as someone who sits in a position where I, I'm these days right the, the uncomfortable nexus of where the editorial department meets the business department. I can tell you this, newspapers still make more money. Newsprint brings in more cash 
than online does. The trouble is that amount of cash is going down. And I really see the future as one where it is going to be much slimmer for everyone. But the difference being is that younger journalists can do three or four things. You know, they can take videos, they can blog, they can report a story. So, I mean, I, I think we're going to see a future where the large organizations have maybe a third less people more, but doing, it's not so much doing a third more work, they'll be working in two, three, or four different mediums. Anyway, what? Thank you very much. It's very helpful. We're, we're running out of time. We have 10 minutes. Let's, uh, my friend Henry Jenkins used to call these the lightning rounds. Let's, let's make them as quick as we can bo on both sides. Yes. I'll just quickly describe my nightmare scenario, which is uh, something like the Boston Globe splits off into Boston.com and BostonGlobe.com, and you have uh, a more affluent, better educated minority reading the actual Globe content, and then you have you know, the 90-whatever percent reading regurgitated wire stories and the top 25 things to do Wednesday afternoons, you know, whatever, and un unpaid uh, bloggers and all that. And the nightmare part is that no one will notice on Boston.com. They'll get their breaking news headlines from the AP, they'll get their SOC scores, and they'll go about their business. I am I missing something? Is that an ideal solution, where they make money off the affluent people who care about the news, or is it an absolute catastrophe for the community in general? Is it an absolute catastrophe for the community in general? I don't know. I mean, you know, for, for several years now, a lot of smart people have thought that uh, newspapers may have made a mistake in um, putting together websites that were essentially just repackaging their content, and that, in fact, the smartest thing to do was to have a website that featured different content and appealed to a different audience. And I give The Globe a lot of credit for giving that a try. Uh, we're going to have to see how it goes, because in fact, you may be right, there may be more people than they're comfortable with thinking that the freeboston.com site, even without uh, much in the way of globe content, is all they really need. Uh, but, but we'll have to see. You know, David talks about the dial that they're going to have for the paywall. The globe is going to have a dial for how much globe content to put into Boston.com. And I suspect that that's going to go up and down quite a bit as they try to figure out, you know, how much do we need to put in here to make the site attractive without necessarily taking away from our pay model plan. Is there already a split between those two audiences? The, you know, who you're selling advertisements to and who you're actually writing the news stories. Well, I mean, there's a split, except that all of the Globe content is free online, so the split may not be that important. I share your uh, concern. I feel like on the, uh, in terms of political information that we self-assemble into verticals of interest which only reinforce what we believe and that the village common is disappearing. That's A, and then B, this deal about, oh, I'm part of, you know, quality audiences and quality, you know, quality content for quality audiences. And the other guy goes, oh, I read Gruel for the low sloping foreheads. Um, <laughs> it seems just fine. And, and creating a kind of bifurcation or ghetto, ghettoization of information. I think that when people talked about an informed uh, citizenry. It's okay that people assemble their news diet. I wouldn't want um, 
uh, great journalism to become a high-class district where everybody wasn't invited. Right, which is why Boston in particular worries me. I feel like. And it's not like Boston hasn't had a little history of that, yeah. by the way. <laughs> We're here. Johanna Knapp Schaefer, freelance writer in Manchester. Uh, I was just curious what your thoughts were on the uh, impact of uh, migration of newspapers to the web and overall decentralization of the news on municipal and state governments. I've heard that state houses are largely empty of reporters these days and that legislators are noticing. Is that true? Well, uh, I would refer you to this uh, uh, speech that Michael Shudson gave the other day who said, that like half the state house reporters are gone. My, I live in New Jersey, which is a game preserve of corruption. Um, our last big bust, we need the three buses just to take the mayors away. Um, you think I'm joking, but I'm, so when the Star-Ledger, which has suffered from this consolidation that Dan talked about in terms of you know, probably a $9 billion retail market is now a $4 billion between consolidation and auto, uh, classified, especially department store consolidation. And that's why it's so cool that Paul Bass is saying that they have a state house sort of uh, component. Because if you look at the budget overall and the spend going out, who controls the most money if you take defense out of it, which is sort of non-discretionary in a way, it's the states, not the feds. And I don't know about you, but the idea of having less accountability reporting in those state houses just uh, terrifies me. And I think we're already seeing impacts in New Jersey. I mean, Star-Ledger has been an amazing, amazing paper, but they're like half again as big as they were. And um, all the guys, they went and said, well, we're gonna make our own New Jersey whatever it's called, it lasted like eight, nine months and then you didn't hear about it much anymore because the buyout money runs out, they got to figure out how to pay their kids tuition, get some hamburgers, and then they move on and we end up net-net with fewer people keeping an eye on government. I know we're in the lightning round. I'll try to make this real quick. Uh, first of all, one of the very first media pieces I ever wrote was on the desertion of the State House and harking back to the golden era at a t of a time when the State House was full of reporters. I wrote that piece in uh, the mid-90s. So some things never change. Uh, there, there's been a steady decline of State House coverage for many, many years. And we do see it accelerating now, but it's nothing new. The other thing is, one of the reasons I love to keep going back to Connecticut is because the, uh, the decline of the traditional media is so much more advanced there than it is in a lot of other places. Uh, I mentioned that the New Haven Register has been in bankruptcy. The Hartford Current is owned by Tribune Company, which is in bankruptcy. And because of this, you have seen the you have seen what happens when a vacuum is created. I mentioned the Connecticut News Junkie, which is a one-woman statehouse bureau. Well, there's also a much better funded project called the Connecticut Mirror, which is an, uh, which is several former Hartford Current people, among others, uh, who are providing terrific statehouse coverage day in, day out. Again a foundation-supported nonprofit. Uh, the money isn't gonna be there forever, but they've got plenty of funding for the next few years, 
And so you do see the kind of accountability journalism that we need uh, being done by some of these nonprofits. Um, Peter Walsh, um, Andover Newton Theological School. Um, I have a question about focus, and that is um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when there was a low point in diversity, I'd say, in the news media. There were three major networks. There were dominant papers in most major media markets. Um, there was a long period when um, journalism was able to take an issue on the fringe, something not sexy, not glamorous, um, not a majority opinion, uh, things like the McCarthy hearings, civil rights, the Vietnam War, um, the Watergate um, break-in, and they were able to take that little thing out on the corner and bring it in to the limelight, into the center of the culture, and then the culture the, and the, the country formed a consensus around that. And since media has broken up, um, we've got people, you know, we've got media outlets of every stripe and opinion, and the national consensus has disintegrated. There is no national consensus. The government is logjammed. It kind of moves back and forth. And my question is, do you see a relationship between those two things? Yes. <laughs> Double yes. <laughs> I just do. And then the question is, then what do you do about it? You don't do anything about it. It was a distinctly 20th century phenomenon. It not only doesn't exist anymore, but it didn't exist before the 20th century either. That's uh, it was just one of those um, odd historical moments, and I think it brought with it good things, and I also think it brought with it bad things. I, frankly, I this love the diversity of a consensus that we have media. Today. One, one, one of the things you have to realize when people talk about monopoly institutions in the respective cities and their respective industries is one of the things, they threw out so much cash, they didn't know what to do with it, so they ended up sticking it into journalism. And that's where investigative journalism came from, that's where, is, is when they had these uh, monopolies, they ended up sitting on, on so much money that, 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 that they ended up funding all manner of adventurous and wonderful, Big long heaves taking apart issues and stuff in, in a way that will, there'll never be that excess revenue in the system to do that. It's going to have to, now that's all gone over to sort of .org, ProPublica part of the equation. Final question. I was interested to see Huffington Post in this list, the, t the top 12 um, yes. sites. And if you didn't already talk about it, um, it, of all of the sort of progressive uh, left liberal websites one could think of, Truth Dig, Truth Out, uh, Common Dreams, Alternet, why Huffington Post? What do you think uh, explains the relative success of Huffington Post? And where can this data, is this kind of data available publicly somehow? These, these two charts, I should have mentioned that the two charts that were displayed are from the fall issue of the American Journalism Review. I put them up partly to cause the kind of connection you've made. It's very curious that there are not exactly radical, but certainly left-oriented sites that are so popular. That's one. Okay. Yes, one. But still, the others are, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, and and the other thing I had hoped people might notice is that 
Uh, one of the distinctive, uh, David mentioned this um, uh, at, the, at the beginning of his talk, one of the most interesting recent developments is the way uh, neutral portals are now beginning to hire journalists and are themselves becoming journalism sites. And they're hiring good journalists and spending money on it. This is especially true of Yahoo and, and uh, AOL. And if we look at these charts, one of the really distinctive and disturbing elements of it is, first of all, that the, the first true newspaper site that shows up on, most, on the most popular sites is the New York Times, and it's number five. And there are only four newspaper sites in the most popular, supposed most popular news sites on the web. But more interesting to me is the other chart which indicates the amount of time that people stay on these portals. Now, there may be more news on AOL or Yahoo than we saw before, than, than has been the case before, but if viewers are, if visitors are only staying there for five minutes or for eight minutes, how much news are they getting? And that's an eternity in web time. That's a very sticky, um, yeah, I'll pull a couple of things. Why them? One, Ariana. Um, never saw a brand build out like it. Historically, before she came along, $50 million, four to five years to build out a national brand. She did it for under 10 million bucks in a year. Remarkable thing to want. Two is, Huppo is a technology company. It's not really a news company. They SEO the hell out of their stuff. They test headlines in real time. Uh, three is, they're kind of a sex company too, is if you, if you get just past that big luscious front page, you see what's driving a lot of um, uh, hits uh, might, might be the inadvertent shots of Britney getting out of a car or that, that, um, that again and again, there's a lot of sort of weird uh, uh, traffic stuff where you see it off to the side, you don't want to look at it, and somehow your mouse just crawls over there. <laughs> And you click on it, and you don't want to reinforce such skullduggery. And but there's something irresistible either in the photo or the, um, <coughs> the. But but the main thing, the main reason is is a, they have a business model based on theft, which kind of helps keep your <laughs> costs down. Um, um, they they will often excerpt their their impression of. Uh, um, what fair use is often goes down six and eight paragraphs. Uh, deep, and that's a pretty handy model. I give Ariana, and I adore her. She just is a gas to be around. But they, they are putting money into, into journalism and stuff, but it's a business based on appropriation and replicating our audience and the audience of others away from ours. I don't take it personal. I just, I just, I just submit to you that it's when, 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 when you take other people's stuff, it tends to have a beneficial effect on, on, on the cost side of your business. It also makes you sell ads at a really low rate that ends up commodifying sales and is probably not great for the news business. Other than that, I think they're great. I, I agree with everything David said. HuffPost is sort of a combination of Talking Points Memo and uh, TMZ. And there are a few aggregators out there that really pursue their business model in a way that, um, that they don't really incentivize you to click on the link. They really want to keep you there. And they do it by uh, overly aggressive summarizing of other people's content. I think the one that is the absolute worst, the bottom of the barrel, is a site called Newser 
but uh, but it really doesn't uh, it doesn't get anywhere near the audience that the Huffington Post does, so it doesn't get as much attention. My suspicion is that the confusion and churn and diversity and the both the positive and negative elements that we've been discussing are likely to go on for a long time. That we may be in the beginning of a, of, a, of of an immensely long time of uncertainty with and and change with regard to uh, where we get our news and how our news is delivered. I'd like to thank. The, our panelists very much for their wonderful participation, and I'd like to thank the audience as well. Thank you very much.